This podcast is recorded in Byron Bay on the Bundjalung Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of this land and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to It Takes Courage to Tell the Truth. This podcast features women from around the world focusing on themes such as birth, business, sustainability, women's health, sex, death, politics, and much, much more. A podcast where we can find our magic, reclaim our witchcraft, and discover our lineage as women. In this conversation, I chat with Nadala Barker. Nadala has been initiated into her culture old way. She is a musician and has a master's in sustainability. But more importantly, she is a Jewish Indigenous Australian woman. Nadala is a Jugan woman from the Kimberley in Western Australia. In this conversation, we talk about sustainability, how to get connected by kicking consumption to the curb, the responsibility of good tech consumption, the significance of Survival Day and the future of a nation embracing its black history. Hey Nadala, welcome to the show. Um, To begin, would you tell listeners your story, your work and a little bit about your passions? My story is a little bit all over the shop in terms of how I got to be where I am, but also makes complete sense. My mother is Polish Jewish and moved to the Walpuri people in desert um, when she was 23, and my dad's Aboriginal. He's Jogon and Yaru from the West Kimberley. So that's just around the Broome area. And I had the immense privilege of being born into really, really strong culture. I was dreamt in by my elders who knew songs and knew dances. I was smoked the day I was born just outside Broome Hospital. I have done all my ceremonies and all my rites of passage to become a woman in that way. And yeah, I think, you know, I still have access to my language. I still have access to my culture, to my paintings. And so I feel really, really privileged in that sense because I have this huge wealth of knowledge in that area. And then my mum is arguably one of the most intelligent women alive, (laughs) in my opinion. She's a really, really high ranking academic who's just disproved patriarchal patterns that we would say you know in anthropology that women in the central desert doesn't have rites of passage and my mum just single-handedly disproved that um, in the white world and she's just she's given me access to that curiosity of research that curiosity of academia um, and that wealth of knowledge in that area as well so I think really the upbringing in my early years was one of really cherishing understanding the world and having immense humility and respect to it and to what the world actually was and to truth. Um, And I think that's very much guided my decisions throughout my life. And I've bounced around a bit. Um, I've been a dancer. I've been um, a human rights lawyer. I've lived in New York, worked for the United Nations, moved to Hawaii, moved to Colombia. And now I'm building a tiny home and playing music and growing vegetables. And so far that seems to be the best equilibrium there is. It just gives me time to think and gives me time to learn. 
Mm, that's a, a beautiful story and also what powerful parents to bring you into the world. You are fiercely passionate about sustainability. As I feel like most mob are just generally in our blood. It runs deep. How do you define sustainability and where do you see it successfully being done? I've thought about this a lot. I actually have a master's degree in sustainability, which was funny because it became to me like that experience over those two years went from the feeling to the thinking. Because I think, as you said, for a lot of us who are, you know, of First Nations from around the world, environmental sustainability isn't something new. It's not something to be achieved. It just is. It's the essence of being. It would be like asking someone what food means to them or what air means to them. It kind of land is your needs as much as drinking and eating and sleeping. And so I think the question of what sustainability is, is what is survival? And sometimes to me that can mean a lot of emotional reaction of fear um, and anger. But I think I've now gotten to a point where sustainability to me now means collaboration. It means how can we actually build with each other a world that will sustain itself? And how can we all do that in our own way? Because I don't think there is one, you know, solution or even just one place that's doing it perfectly. I don't think the solution is perfect. I think there's billions of solutions and everybody has to take ownership and be accountable of what solution they can bring and build. But to me, true sustainability, if we are to achieve it, everybody has to do the best they can. And that doesn't mean, you know, like participation medal for a race. That means that everybody needs to be highly accountable to doing 100% of what they can and not 10% and post it on social media and not 20% and give themselves a gold star, 100% of what you can. And if to you that looks like eating only locally, then so be it. If to you that means standing outside and picketing in front of banks that want to do coal, then that's you as well. It doesn't mean you can't do both, but it does mean that you can, you have to do a hundred percent of what you want to do. And to me, that's where that line is. It's both really refreshing because there is no wrong answer. Any solution building towards sustainability will help the earth. But at the same time, it's scary because if anybody, if everybody only did 10%, then we're only going to achieve 10% of where we need to be. Yeah. And I love that as well, that each person to decide what is their hundred percent, because obviously we've been bred and brought into a society that's fiercely unequal and um, looks different for everybody. And, you know, the idea of like reaching sustainability, especially for some low socioeconomic people who are getting told, oh, eat organic and eat local. Well, actually, unfortunately, because of our government, because our government doesn't subsidize health food, it subsidized junk food. That means low socioeconomic miss out in this situation. So I love the idea of just being like, what feels 100% in your capacity? Because we have to allow that moving forward as well. And also to be realistic of your capacity, right? Like 100% agree with what you're saying. And I think that the problem is that people who have more often don't conceive themselves as having more. And this is the problem with privilege in whatever form it takes. I mean, this is the problem with white privilege is that 
white people genuinely believe that they don't have this privilege. Not all of them, but a large proportion of people genuinely cannot see their privilege. And this is why the conversation around privilege is so important. Because once you understand you have privilege, you understand you have power. And once you have power, you have an obligation to do something with that. And you don't get a free ride. And that's the truth about sustainability. And that's the truth about our society that we so, you know, quickly look away from is that you do not get a free pass. Whatever it is that you're doing, wherever you're putting your money, wherever you're putting your time, wherever you're putting your voice, it matters and it builds. And if you do have the opportunity to eat organic, then so you should. But as you say, like, I mean, this exact conversation of what food you eat is a really big one around my community where I grew up because, you know, at the local shop in Bijeranga, the apple is $5 for one apple. So how are you meant to do that? How are you meant to do that when you can't afford it? How are you meant to do that when you have 15 kids, give them a, one apple each a day and be like, oh, that'll do it, kids. You'll survive. No, you can't do it. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's also about understanding your impact because, well, the truth is that my family members who live in community in the Kimberley, they have a much smaller environmental footprint than someone who, you know, might use a keep cup, might eat organic, but is living on Bondi Beach. So it's about going, sure, you have the privilege to do something about it, but it's also probably because your impact on the world is currently larger. And so it's all a question of proportionality. And I think that's the big thing is that it's, I, I know I keep saying it's the big thing. There's a lot of big things in this equation, but that's what it's about. It's, I think sustainability is about understanding your place in the world first and foremost. And once you know what that is, then you can do something about it. And then you actually have to do something about it. Because, you know, I think a lot of the conversation, particularly around, you know, more left-leaning or, or green functioning spaces is, you know, it's always the, the interaction of like, yeah, cool, we can reduce our plastic packaging, but what about the corporations? They produce heaps more than we do. You know, it can't be up to the individual. And it's like, no, it can't be up to the individual but it also can't be left up to the corporations. It's up to all of us at every stage. And I think that there is a bit of a cop out in that area of, yeah, do the best you can, but do the best you can always. It doesn't mean you can't make a mistake, but it, you we have to stop pointing fingers at each other. You know what I'm saying? Like, but you're doing this and you're doing that and you're still eating meat and you drive a land cruiser and you do this and you do that. And it's like, yeah, but, what about you? Look at yourself and do the best you can and start there because we do need to be critical because there's something deeply wrong. But I think the first step of our critical analysis needs to be ourselves. And whatever form that is, whether it's, you know, your white privilege, whether it's your socioeconomic placement, whether it's your political privilege, whether it's your economic privilege, whatever it is, look at yourself first. I mean, on that note too, you know, I think about things like Land Rovers and then I think about this big um, societal push that we've had in the last couple of years for everything to go electric and that there, there can sometimes be dangers in that. And, and I just wonder what you feel or how you find greenwashing to be dangerous in our current society. Oh, that's, that's a really big one. Um, I think there's greenwashing and, and then beyond that, there's, you know, I think 
greenwashing is really a term where like if you boil it down what it means is it's lying it's lying with a really really blatant victim which is our shared earth and i think that's you know sometimes the term greenwashing can almost minimize what it is and i think that's where the real danger is particularly you know with um with big brands who will claim sustainability or will do small solutions like you know like yeah those small solutions are important or, or, or promote a certain agenda to look good you know i mean mining companies do a great job at this they like we plant trees there's a huge danger in that because it kind of puts a veil and as we were saying before the only way we're going to be successful in saving ourselves and saving our earth is by being truthful is by looking at the truth and looking at ourselves and going what can we do a hundred percent better and with greenwashing it's coming in between the solution and saying here's the minimal effort here's maybe like 0.2 percent of what i could do i'm going to wear it as a veil and hide and there is no way in which we can move forward if that's how we're going to do it because actually doing five percent and using that as a shield to not do more is more detrimental than if you were doing nothing at all and wore that with true colors you know i have people around me who don't really care about the environment and who wear that on themselves with pride obviously i have a huge problem with that but at least it enables you to have a conversation and at least they're being truthful because when you walk around with you know like all these false ideas as false then how are you supposed to know what the solution is and i think the big problem with greenwashing is that often the people wearing it you know like a sort of veil or let's say like a cape like a cape of invisibility right it's like i put on my greenwashing cloak and now i disappear in front of everyone and no one can find me and no one can criticize me because i've done this thing you know like the problem is that they have an influence and then people buy into that and think that they're making a change and that's highly detrimental because they're being lied to as well and it's really really disheartening and this is what a lot of my research during my master's boiled down to i was trying to look at what makes sustainable solutions hold and what makes them break down essentially and and a big thing was if people feel like they've tried and they've failed or they've fallen short that is like the number one reason someone will not try again and we've all had that experience you know you you try to do something and it doesn't quite work out and you feel a bit dumb about it and you won't try it again and in an age where it is detrimental to our very survival that everyone just gives it a red hot go to lie to people and to make them feel you know disempowered is really really problematic and so i think that that's why greenwashing needs to be called out so distinctly and i think that sustainability and and any kind of conversation i mean you know particularly about race identity and australian stuff i think has been really hypercharged and it's like we almost don't know how to meet each other in a space to talk anymore it's like we just bark over each other and we've become so polarized it's like this lucky band this big elastic band that's just been pull 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 and the only way we ever meet each other is when it's released and we're smacking into each other if we could just drop the pretense for a moment drop the personal attacks forget 
you know, about reputation and about who's watching, then we can actually have truthful conversation and we can call each other out and tell each other, look, I see what you're doing and it's not good enough. And if people could hear that, if someone walked up to me, like if you today, Ella, walked up to me in the street and went, Nin, that's not good enough, but you can do better. Isn't that just a beautiful way to collaborate to a solution? If we can meet each other in a place where we can give criticism and receive criticism in a way that's open and not in a way that we bump heads, then, then that would be tremendous because that would actually be a solution. By pretending you're something you're not, by covering yourself with greenwashing, by covering yourself you know, with these, these ideas, these false things, these falsehoods, then there's no way we can heal from that. There's no way we can move forward from that because no one's sitting at the table. And that's what it is. Like, that's what greenwashing is. It's walking away from the table. It's like the, we need to change our ideology or belief system that failing forward is a good thing. You know, as children, when we're learning to walk, we stumble, but we embrace that, you know? And now as adults, it's like, if we, if we stumble in the street, how often will you just reassert your, you know, posture and continue to walk as if nothing ever happened and I feel like we do that a lot rather than recognizing hey this this little tiny stumble is an opportunity for me to to move into a place of whoa how can I walk straighter how can I be more aware of what I'm what I'm walking on so I'm not stumbling how can I learn from that very experience and that that is for me what I believe the true true nature of humility is but I do think yeah. we're, we're rushing down a scary portal with social media and just generally the modern kind of digital dictatorship is what I call it, where our humility of our human species, what I think holds us together is falling by the wayside. It's not just like, I agree with you. It's like we, we need to learn to fail and we need to learn to hear it as well. And I think, it's so reassuring when we can actually just say, receive guidance, you know, when we can receive guidance because it's terrifying to stand up on your own and you're like, is this okay? And all you get around you is, yeah, babe, you look stunning. Yeah, babe, it's amazing. Absolutely, hun, 100%. I back you and say, like, what if, what if that doesn't look that great? You know, like you wouldn't let your mate walk out of the toilet with a toilet paper under her foot. That's what we're doing. We're like, you see a problem, you do something about it. You're not going to be offended if someone says, hey, you have toilet paper under your foot. So why would you get offended when someone's like, hey, actually, there's a better way to do this. We can find a solution together. Like it's terrifying to stand up on your own with no one being honest around you. Let's just allow ourselves to be honest and kind to each other and not pretend, you know. I like the cloak analogy. It takes me to the fashion industry, which we have seen time and time again utilize greenwashing in marketing and they are the second biggest polluter to the earth. But I have been finding more and more that there is a real push within the industry and the people who are running it to want to make a shift and a change and to see how they can step up, step up. 100%. And I think what it boils down to is, and I very much share this feeling of like the us and them, and I think for me, the reason I do this othering is that I'm angry and I'm angry because I'm scared. And if you flip it on the other side, you know, the reason why, you know, sometimes people won't ask questions to 
opinionated women like you and I, Ella, is because they're scared. And they're scared because they might be ashamed. You know, so it's like if we all just acknowledge that we're all kind of terrified because this thing that's happening in front of us is terrifying. And we can just meet each other in the urgency of like, let's deal with all the other stuff later because we can't pretend that we're just like one united people, like a global village and we're going to be best mates. No, that's never going to happen. There's fundamental issues, but we do actually need to put some stuff on the back burner because our earth is on fire. You know? Yes. Yes, we do. And then I know that you are a warrior at this but how do you fight consumptive behaviors and capitalism in a society that is constantly ramming us with marketing whether it be you know at a concert or on your phone yeah well this i suppose is where i acknowledge my own privilege in that i grew up in a certain type of mentality and i grew up with a lot less I grew up with parents who from a really, really young age instigated that message into me. You know what I mean? My parents are highly intelligent people who from the very get go said to me, it's a trap. (laughs) Don't buy into it. And so that habit was built in for me. It was a part of the package that was given to me. And so this is where I need to acknowledge my privilege, but it is easier for me than it is for a lot of other people. Because if you've grown up in a household with two televisions and clothes being given to you every week and all that kind of stuff and fridges that, you know, like you have a drink spirit and blah, blah, blah. Like how are you supposed to take a step to where I am? That's a huge step because for me, you know, living in a tiny house where I, you know, it's only a 50 drum liter, like 50 liter drum of water and a couple solar panels and it's like a fan and a charger for my computer. That's feasible because it's like a skip away from what I've done for most people. It's not. So what I do personally, um, that I found really easy and that I think the question, a a more efficient way to answer this question was how has my lifestyle affected those around me and what have others taken from it is not buying anything new. And this ties into the fast fashion thing. There is so much that exists in the world already. Go to your local op shops. Everything already exists. There is nothing that you want, which isn't already made. There is so much whether it is a spoon, a shirt, a couch, paint. I mean, I'm building a tiny home at the moment out of 100% recycled materials. All of these things already exist. Not only is it better for the environment, it's better for your wallet and it's completely hassle-free because I know that a big feedback that I got during my research at the Masters is people go, it's really difficult to know what greenwashing is and like what brands are actually genuine, blah, blah, blah. Real simple way to skip that. Go to the op shop because 100% of what's there is fine. You have zero guilt. You walk in there, anything that's on the rack, you're good. You know what I mean? And and, and that's just kind of one really big thing. And a second is choosing to use my money wisely, um, making less money intentionally, which I know sounds absolutely insane, but I intentionally make very little money so that I spend very little money. And then I dedicate my time and work to things which give me value in other ways. For example, my veggie garden, I intentionally do not work a full-time job so that I have enough time to grow my own vegetables, so that I have enough time to have conversations like I'm having right now 
because this gives me value. It gives me something back that isn't monetary. So really actively reinstigating what value and worth is outside of an economic system, whether that's, you know, going to the beach or going for a run, going and having a cup of tea at the beach instead of meeting your friend at a cafe, small things like that, you know, like how do we reinstigate value outside of that is also really interesting and it's great for your wallet. <laughs> I agree. And I thought I was rebellious when I finished school and was like, hell no, I'm never doing a nine to five. And so did most of my family. But I think that I've like pretty much been the one in the family that's managed to travel the most on the littlest amount, work as little as possible. But I've done so much more than what mainstream society sees as success, which is things like understanding how to grow my own garden, understanding bush foods, being able to reclaim my culture in a way that's really embodied, which for me is the most important part of walking through the world is really reconnecting with that natural world and reclaiming what my bloodline and what many of us as human beings have been so forcibly denied. It's like, that's the whole thing, right? It's that it's, it is work. It is work and it is value. It's just, it blows my mind that we have this idea in our world today that somehow you are the work and that means making money and that means working for the economy or you're lazy. And it's like, actually, no, I work. My work means that I'm using my skills to do something productive. When I plant trees by the Creek, I am working for the earth. I'm working for my local ecosystems. I'm working for the birds that are going to live there. When I speak with you right now, I am working. And so are you. We are working. We're using our skills and knowledge to educate other people to create a positive impact. All this is work. It is not because we're not making money. It's not because it's not an exchange that somehow has to go through a bank, that it isn't worthwhile and that it isn't work and that it isn't worthy of wearing that with pride. And this is the really big thing, you know, of, of shifting conversation of you first meet someone and go, oh, what do you do for work? And said, what do you do that gives you passion? Mm. What is it that you do that, to build a better world? Because to build a better world is a hell of a lot of work. And it doesn't have to do with the, with the economy. And Ella, like you are one of the prime examples of what I'm saying. Sure, you know, you're not doing the nine to five. But proportionally, you've done a lot more than most people to shift the world in a positive direction. You know um, what I mean? And that has too. nothing to do. <laughs> you know, like it has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with a nine to five. Sure, you can have lots of money in your bank, money in your super, buy a house. What is that doing for anybody else but you? And that is where ideologies differ from indigenous culture to Western culture. And when we start to look at that individual ideology, which is the basic brainwashing that our society does to keep us disconnected, when you can return to a deeper embodied knowing that we are part of something bigger than our own sense of self, that we actually are here to be with the plants and our more than human kin, that we can experience so much joy and actually really consume much less when we are in that state of connection, because I do believe there is a link to disconnection and consumption, then we can really start to 
to shift, but it starts in that ideology. And you, you and me are privy and lucky to have indigenous blood to this land. Even if we, for me, I wasn't brought up in strong culture, but having that and part of my identity, it made me want to find culture again. It made me want to find the truest culture that I could find, you know, prior to European invasion to hold that down for my ancestors. What do you think or how do you think or see our ideologies and belief systems changing? Do you think as Australia we can shift towards an ideological change? I do because I'm an inherently hopeful person and I think that in Australia we have this incredible privilege of having a continuously living culture that has this idea that goes beyond individualism, right? And these small things, but just as you were talking then, like I was thinking about the fact how much we're so drawn into individualism that we think we work hard and that blah, blah, blah. But that actually breaks down individual worthiness because I was thinking about this the other day. I was trying to give a friend a present and he was being so weird about it. And I'm like, why won't you just receive? And it's because he is conceiving himself in such a box that he couldn't possibly envision how he could receive because he doesn't see what he gives. And it's all about that. It's, it's you give and you take, you give and you take, and it creates a flow. And it's no longer like I give you something, I take something from you. It's just a flow. It's a circle. It continues. And you're a part of that and it's moving and it's rolling. And it's like you output, you input, you output, you input. And it's, that surely we're going to fall back into it because it makes no sense because at the moment we're kind of in our society stuck in this like almost this gridlock where everybody wants to take as much as they can yet they don't know how to receive which is so strange because we've gone from giving and receiving to taking and rejecting and it's like it's almost like the wheel's gone the other way and it doesn't feel good for anyone. So, and I think that's why I'm so hopeful is that I believe that there is something inherent about us as humans that we want to be together. We want to be kind. We know that it feels good to be by the ocean and under the trees and, you know, in kinship with the animals around us. We know that that feels good. And, and that's not something that anyone can deny. And we know that it feels crappy to cut down a tree or to see an animal hurt or to set fire to something. It doesn't feel good. And I think that that, we're just being pushed to such a point where there's pressure and we're not going to be able to move forward because there's this gridlock, right? With the environment, with, you know, the taking, with the economy, with the fact that like, the whole economy is probably going to blow up real soon because COVID has really put a spin in the wheel. We're going to get to a point where we're all going to face the same wall. And once we're all facing the wall, all we can do is feel. And that's what it all, it's going to boil down to the fact that actually being with each other feels incredible. It feels good. And sharing feels good. And receiving and gifting feels good. And so that's why I'm hopeful. And we still have this living culture and we have this incredible land that was looked after and nurtured. We're just, you know, I think we're going to look back on all this and be like, oh, what a freaking weird time that was. 
Yeah, but also what a great turning point we did have last year where there were people decided, right, what's, what am I returning to? And I saw so much hope last year with people returning to growing gardens and people returning to like going local and, and even just the idea of people being out on the street and the neighborhoods being full because they could only stay within their neighborhood. And you're knowing your neighbors and you're talking to them and, you know, they suddenly created a community from COVID that I feel like there's been a big rush in 2021 to like get back to the new normal. Like let's get back to life as it is nine to five quick paced spaces without realizing really taking a pause as a global society to realize that when viruses actually come about, it's because they're trying to put balance back into a system that is inherently imbalanced. And that's how we end up getting viruses is if we have compromised immunity, which is essentially an imbalance in our body. You know, and we can start to see on a very simple way how that's been rippled out globally as well. So, you know, my hope for 2021 is that we we learn from the lessons of 2020, that we return to that those kinds of slower paced ways and and start to not try and just fast paced this oh digital dictatorship which leads me to my next question what are your feelings and thoughts around the ever arising technological future that seems to be presented in front of us how do you how do you feel in your body, in your intuition as a woman about that future for us? I think there's kind of two parts to this answer. The first is I have quite a fascination for global world breakdown. Sci-fi is my favorite genre. I spend a lot of time thinking about the end of the world. It's quite a fascination of mine because I think I'm incredibly hopeful for what will blossom afterwards. And so that's kind of, you know, answering to what you were saying. And I think I saw a lot of hope in the virus of, I had so many people message me because, you know, I'm kind of like that odd friend in the group that they were like, I know someone who lives in a house she made herself and she eats her vegetables from her garden. And they're kind of like, she's a bit weird. But I got so many people messaging me, asking me what my life would be like. And I think that sparked a curiosity. And I think that sparked a certain kind of, of hope and of new possibility. And I think that that was allowed in a lot of ways by social media, by people communicating different solutions. And, you know, I have people from all around the world who message me and that's not something that would have happened at the time of my ancestors. That's not something that would have happened when, you know, all my Jogon tribe was living out in the bush. You know, it was the end of the world. Like, yeah, they were fine. Like my dad who lives in the bush, he pretty much forgets his Corona because like nothing kind of affects him because he's just in his bush plot <laughs> fishing and having his fine time. But that's not getting through to anyone either. And I think that technology has allowed us to connect in more ways than we've ever been able to before. And, you know, as I said from the, at the very beginning of, our, of this podcast is, I think that that's how we're going to heal is by connecting with each other and by collaborating. And I see that technology has an incredible potential to do that in in a lot of ways um you know i was living in colombia i think almost three years ago and i was able to build a, a you know a generator 
out of all these spare parts that would like run through the creek and it was completely fossil fuel free. And I was able to do that because I collaborated with other students from my master's degree and we all had this big Skype conversation and over two weeks we built this huge generator for this village who now was completely power independent. And, and that was possible because of technology. And I think we need to go back to the root of what technology is, is that it's a tool. And as long as it stays that, it stays a tool and it doesn't become a drug, it doesn't become addictive, it doesn't surpass us, then there's massive beauty in it. And we've always used technology to build our society. We've always used technology to do better. You know, if you, you know, whether it's when we first invented a hammer to bash things or things to light fires, all those tools are useful as long as they remain tools. I think that the massive danger that we're facing is that we're losing control of them. And, you know, just a direct impact that a lot of people I think don't really think about is, you know, we all talk about social media addiction and you know how that world isn't real and blah, blah, blah. I think what we don't talk enough about is the fact that every minute we have our phone on involves power usage. And this is something I have to think a lot about because of my solar panels, right? A phone, when it's on, uses power. It uses data. The data is stored somewhere. The places where those data are, like where that data is stored, is hundreds of thousands of computers, one after the other, which have to be cooled, which have to be powered. The energy intensity of our addiction is humongous. And that's the bit that's crazy is that, you know, like if someone has, I don't know, a drug addiction, they're damaging their own body and they're damaging, you know, their emotion, the emotions of the people around them. But the addiction to technology is so much bigger because we, it's not our bodies that we're damaging. It's our collective body. That's the earth. And I think there's that as a huge issue. And then again, as we were saying from before, like there's all the greenwashing, there's all, you know, the surface level, there's the cloaks. As long as we can use it as a tool and as a conscious tool, not as something that takes control of us, but as something that we can consciously channel into solutions, then heck yeah, I'm there for it. But I can almost guarantee that if we, like, we have this really, really thin window where it's slipping away from us and we still have a bit of a grip on it, if we don't grip it now, there is nowhere we can stop it. And I don't mean like a Sarah Connor's Terminator situation. I mean that algorithms can then decide where the economy goes. And as we were saying, like you have a choice every time you spend money, but what if that's no longer your choice because it's so loud that you don't know what your own thought is than what was given to you. To me, that's terrifying. That's absolutely terrifying. And I think that as much as coming together is going to be our solution, it has to be done in the right way because we have to come together as people, as local, as human beings. We have to come together in humanity, not come together in consumption. Yes. I click, click, click to that. And you know, like it's so true that we have to put limitations on things the same way that we have to put a limitation on how much food we eat. It's not, sustainable to eat eight large meals a day therefore it's not sustainable to sit on technology all day and not interact with other human beings or interact with the natural world and that's something that i totally agree with you that is not 
being spoken about enough, you know, is, is bringing back the balance of technology. And I guess when you talk about technology as working alongside the human species in order to grow, I understand that. But I think my anti-techness comes from AI, which is the slippy, slippery slope that we're going down. And that idea that are we building something that takes away our inherent reason for living? You know, are we building a technology that will take away what our purpose is in the collective and what our, you know, purpose is to the earth as well? Because as we move more into the AI movement, and I'm seeing a lot with big agriculture, especially is that robots start working the land. And for me, that's inherently going to do damage, not only to the land, but to the people, you know, and I'm not saying we just need a few 2% of farmers out there on the farms. We need everybody out on the farms interacting with the earth, having a connection with plants, being able to see what their food looks like when you put a seed in the ground, being able to have a relationship with growing that because that's where we develop and reinstate our ability to protect something that fundamentally is for our survival, not drones that deliver us food. Yeah. And I think that's where that line is really important is that, you know, to make that difference between like when we're saying there's a danger in AI, we're not talking about, you know, machines and hospitals that are going to save lives. We're not talking about, you know, those types of things. But, you know, that, that it's a really wide term to talk about technology just as one thing. Yeah. And then I think that then it becomes dangerous when, and this is true for anything, is that as soon as we use broad umbrella terms, we turn a lot of people away. And I think this is the big, big conversation around, you know, around the five details is that a lot of people got turned away by being like, oh, but we need technology. It's like, yeah, but no, we don't need this, you know? And it's because there's broad umbrella terms and people go, well, you know, I like to drive my new car and I like, and you know, there's eco solutions to tools. Yeah, windmills are technology. Solar panels are technology, but they're technology going in the right way. And I think that, you know, people say this solar panel, so a 5G tower is okay. No, <laughs> it's not one or the other. And again, it's 100%. It's 100% of your capacity. We need the solar panels, we do. But we can't have a 5G tower next to a solar panel. That's just not gonna fly. You know what I mean? And there's, there's that kind of back and forth every time of, I agree, technology is, can be incredibly dangerous. I mean, like today I was at the Tea Tree Lakes in Byron Bay and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful day. The weather was heavenly. There was this really subtle breeze and the trees were dancing and there was, there was this family of four forest kingfishers, bright blue floating above the water. It was stunning. And there was a group next to me and there was maybe 10 of them. One of them wasn't on their phone, which absolutely, if you want to be on social media, be on social media. But when you can't even connect with the people around you or the natural environment around you, then you're actually being restrained, you know, like, and I, I was looking at them and I thought it would be the same as wearing a stray jacket. No one would be okay with that because it's the physical representation, but they're wearing a stray jacket on their mind and no one is telling them that it's not okay and that it's not their fault. And I think there's so much based around 
you know, individual responsibility that it just, yeah, it needs to be broader than that. You know, and safety mechanisms need to be brought in place. Absolutely. We, we kind of saw this like massive trend to spirituality about 10 or so years ago. I mean, really in the mainstream where you could work into like urban outfitters or whatever that fast fashion store is, that's the devil. And they have crystals and, you know, witch books. And there was this real surgence of like trending spirituality. For me, when I started that path very long ago, trying to find my way back to a spiritual way of living, the number one thing that I was taught through all the ancient teachings globally around the world, whether it was in person or as reading from a book, was presence. How to show up in the world with presence. And that's what I get scared of when I look at our world and when I look at the the next generation coming through and even those younger than us and our own generation of, you know, we're the guinea pigs basically to all of this new technology. But I just beg people to ask the question, are you spending your days in presence with the world around you? Just to build on what you're saying, I think, as you say, like presence is essential. I think the bit that's hard though is that a lot of people might not know what that feels like. And a big thing I like to do to remind myself, and this might be helpful for anyone listening, is if I need to remember what it feels like to just be and to be present, just go to nature anywhere and leave your phone at home. Go by yourself and go sit in nature for a second and see what happens. Because for the first 20 minutes, maybe your voice will be loud and you'll be like, this is weird, not know how to sit. And then maybe you'll notice that there's a problem because if you can't be by yourself for like five hours under a tree and the very action of just sitting makes you uncomfortable, then you probably need to learn how to just be. But if you just sit there and you look and you listen and you feel and you smell and you taste what's that tastes in the air, then that's presence and that's what it feels like to be. And anything that's not that, you'll know. Do you know what I mean? It's it can be so simple. Yeah, it it it, it actually is simple. Like I think that the complex nature of our modern society has just done that it's overcomplicated. our reason for being here is how many people walk through the world trying to figure out what their purpose is and sometimes Mm -hmm. that aspect of being in the present moment makes you remember what what it is makes you remember in a fully embodied way how to walk in this world but i wonder you know with all of the social media and applications and access to information, how do you see a difference in the modern context of how we, how we receive information in juxtaposition to say how our original peoples would have received knowledge? So for me, this question comes in too, because obviously on the Aboriginal side of my family and on the Jewish side, it's very different, but I think that it carries the same kind of learning. And I mean, my original identity is what I was brought up with. And a big thing, I think, which I always struggle with when I was little, because I have a loud voice and I've always been drawn to speak 
was that until you're about in your 50s, you don't really get a vote. You don't get a voice. You are there to learn. And you have to do this whole thing of learning and of figuring things out and of navigating your own emotions, self-soothe, self-soothe, and then you get to speak. And I think this kind of protected society gets exactly what you were saying you went through when you were young, that you came out of school and you were like, screw the system, and you were angry and you were loud and you were reckless and you were like electric and static. And we're all like that when we're young. And I think I'm still very much like that. I'm slowing down, but I'm still very much static. And I think the reason that is, is that I haven't learned enough yet. I'm still learning. But again, I'm learning a lot because I have a huge access to information. I mean, for myself in particular, I mean, I have three degrees. I've lived in all different kinds of countries. I speak four languages. I'm just like, I'm highly addicted to knowledge. But there's, you know, our ability to ingest data and then there's our ability to process it. And I think that's what, you know, when we talk about what intelligence is, you know, there's, there's this beautiful German philosopher, he says, intelligence is your ability to absorb data and to turn it into a thoughtful process. And that's the truth, is that, as you say, we're absorbing all this data around us, like, but we're not actually digesting any of it. It's as if, you know, you're at Christmas dinner and you eat too much and you eat so much, you throw it up. And that's kind of what's happening with the data is that there's so much information around us that we get it, get it, get it. We get overwhelmed then we reject it. And we actually haven't learned anything. And I think that that's where the line is. And I don't think that we should go back to, you know, how things were or whatever. I found it particularly frustrating when I was little to, you know, not be able to speak and I think I'm now at a point where I do have some level of conflict with my family because I have spoken my mind and I don't think that that's the way to do it but to do things better you know find that middle ground between we have let the cat out of the bag with the internet there is access to data everywhere but it is highly overwhelming to know what is truth and the only way to do that is to take things slower to go if I want to learn about solar panels I'm going to get a breadth of things and make up my mind. If I want to know about 5G towers, I'm going to listen to both sides of the argument and make my mind. And it's about doing that. It's learning needs to happen when you ingest data and you do something with it. Two sides, always. And I think that that's very important. Or my way, which is to just go completely against anything the mainstream narrative is putting forward. <laughs> <laughs> Everything no. is always a lie. Yours is much more diplomatic. Mine is much more dictatory. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, okay, last year we saw Black Lives Matter, which was a global um, phenomenon and also used really with technology to highlight the injustices that have happened to ind Indigenous and African-American, Black and Brown people all around the world. And for me, I think that's a powerful tool when we can really show the world something that, that technology can be used as a powerful tool to enable us to see the stories of others and to be able to come together to say, hey, enough is enough, you know. What do you think are the next steps forward for Australia to actually embrace our Black history? So I think in terms of Australia and in terms of every Australian is to, to learn. 
and in the way that we've just been saying, to learn from both sides and to take time to look at it. Take time to feel what is needed to be felt or to stop pretending. We are wearing this same cloak that we wear with greenwashing. We're wearing it in our history. It's not because we don't talk about it that it's not there. And I think that that's where the danger is with, I felt two parts with this Black Lives Matter swell is that I think it's great that the stories are being told, but immediately I was like, how long are people going to be listening for? Because we've been saying this for years and nothing is done about it. So I think when you feel something like was felt at the moment of Black Lives Matter and a lot of people felt that urgency to do something, don't let that die out. You know, it's not because the urgency dies back that the matter disappears. I think that the way forward for Australia is for us to just have conversations, stop yelling at each other or hiding in shame or, and in particular on Indigenous issues, you know, a lot of people won't want to ask questions because they're scared of being wrong or being yelled at. Ask the difficult questions at the risk of being yelled at because there's anger there, because there's emotion there. Don't try to deal with things in a politically correct way all the time because, well, none of this is politically correct. None of this is emotionally correct. None of this is okay. We're all in pain and to pretend that nothing happened isn't going to serve any of us. So I don't think that the way is to move forward or move through. I think we just need to break open with each other a little bit, you know, to sit down and have truthful conversation and, Listen to both sides of the argument and actually learn. Sit down and listen. Read. Take time to learn things properly because it's everyone's history. And we're all custodians of this country now. So it's up to all of us to do something about it. And in state, a all-female Aboriginal <laughs> council as our prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so tomorrow is Survival Day. Um, so for those listeners who don't know what Survival Day is, go out and do your research. What is Survival Day to you? And, and how has um, this day, how has it shown up for you in your life? And have you seen a difference in, in the way that the day is taken to the mainstream society? Yeah. So for me, it was actually really weird because growing up in the Kimberley, we don't celebrate Australia Day in Aboriginal communities. So I actually discovered Australia Day at the ripe age of 18. I had no idea it was a thing. I fully didn't know. And then I came here and to this side of Australia and I think what it is is that to me it's an embodiment of this wall we were talking about of the stubbornness of the system that just doesn't make sense. You cannot celebrate unity when it's hurting other people. And to me, like, this is really, like, the conversation around Australia Day to me is really interesting because, you know, even though, like, the fact that when invasion happened, Australia wasn't even a country. It wasn't Australia until 1901. Like, it's just there's such a stubbornness and a willingness to lie to ourselves that it's making all of us look like fools. And to me, it's almost like this, um, it's, it's pathetic in like the, the sense of like the theatre of like 
a pathos, you know, like it's comical. It's like a clown show of watching all these moving parts argue of going, but none of this is true and none of this makes sense, but we're so stubborn at lying to ourselves and desperately clinging on to things that might be true and that might make us feel safe that we're completely ignoring anything that makes sense. So for me, it's less, you know, I, I, I empathize that there's a lot of my indigenous brothers and sisters who feel it very much as an insult to our culture, to the massacres that our, our people suffered and a hundred percent respect that. I think to me, it's something a little bit different. It's just the embodiment of everything that's wrong with, you know, how we deal with Indigenous Australia as a country. It's really, really, and it's almost like this incredibly interesting climax of, of really everything that's wrong can be pinpointed in that one day, in that one set of conversation. So to me, it's an incredible opportunity. And I think that it's changed because slowly we're beginning to peel the things back. And, you know, I was talking about before, you know, when we're talking about sustainability, that all of us coming to sit down at the table and having that conversation. I think Invasion Day is a table. It's a table for us to come and sit at and go, this is where we talk. And I think there's a lot of beauty to it. But I would very much like to see it another day. <laughs> because that's the conclusion of where it's going to go, is that this, this is a charade. It's not going to last. It's, it's clans and costumes. It's smoke screens. It's excuses. It's privilege. It's anger. And it's rotten. And it's going to decompose because that's the only way that anything happens. Yes, I agree. I, I did walk into our local IGA the other day and saw um, Australia Day memorabilia and was like, I'm never shopping here again. <laughs> and that's just what happens in my body. I get like, I don't know. I, I mean, differently to you because I grew up in Sydney and also back home on traditional land. So had this kind of, dual space but we were always at Yarbin festival which is survival festival you know in the middle of Hyde Park and 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 it was a day to come together to celebrate actually the survival of our culture and the survival of Aboriginal people still living um but to have the you know the bombardment um of this Australiana on a day that's so deeply significant to a proportion of the population whose ancestors built the earth that everybody in this country is profiting off and more. It is inexcusable. And, and I can't actually believe in 2021, we're still having this conversation of what the hell are we doing tomorrow? So unfair to everyone involved and like that's the bit that I don't understand is that like Australian if they want to celebrate it they should be able to but why do we want to celebrate it on a day that's going to be filled with conflict I'm all for celebrating you celebrate whatever you want to celebrate the other day I had a dinner party because I managed to bloom some orange flowers and I was stoked about it I am all about celebrating I'm all about coming together but why choose to do it on a day where you're going to be riddled with guilt? Like surely that doesn't feel good to white Australia either to celebrate who they are. It's like, it's like this weird acknowledgement that like the only reason they are who they are is because they blasted our people. Like, don't you want to celebrate more? Don't you want to, 
you know, come together on a day where you can actually celebrate Australia for what it is because it's a beautiful country. We live in a beautiful country and though Australiana is not my world, this beauty and this joy and this pride in that too. But don't you want that to be on a day where you can acknowledge that you were more than the massacres you did? Nadala, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Um, I love exploring your mind and the way that you are walking through the world and showing up with deep, strong authenticity is something that I admire. And um, I'm so glad that we have Indigenous leaders and singer-songwriters and sustainable masters such as you who our younger generations can look to because I really believe that you are showing up with the right answers and the right direction that we need as a community to hold, not just Indigenous, but all. So thank you for sharing your wisdom um, and coming on board to have a chat with me today. Thank you for having me and listening. So for our listeners who want to find out more from Nadala, where can we direct them? Sure. So um, after bashing on the old social media, my Instagram is where I post a lot of the things that I write, um, that I speak. It's also just a great channel to be able to ask questions. So if you do want to reach out, feel free. And that's just nini.barker, so N-I-N-I dot B-A-R-K-E-R. And there's also all my music stuff on there. So that'll be a little bit of a digital piece of who I am in human form. And are we expecting an album or something this year? We are expecting an album soon, which um, will be a whole story in its own, but it's going to be a tool to change the way we think and speak about Indigenous people, hopefully, Um, and that will actually come with a tour um, that will be a musical tour, but also with a series of speakers. So that's to be expected and very exciting for the new year to come. Thanks, Nini. Thank you so much.